Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. We are just taking a nice slow stroll through the book of Matthew in your Bibles. Uh, If you have them, you can open them up. You have your phone. We also have some in the back. If you'd like to grab one of those, you can steal one of those. Uh, We have been going through this for quite a while, and it's been just a beautiful thing for us to cover every verse, pretty much, in the Gospel of Matthew. But uh, as we turn to chapter 12, uh, some of you maybe are newer. It's your first week. You've been here a few weeks, and you're like, wow, we're really into this. Can I get a bit of, like, what's going on here (laughs) so I'm not lost? Uh, how many of you, raise your hand, have you ever seen the movie Ratatouille? Anybody? Pretty good. Okay, yeah, great movie. Uh, there, there's this kind of thing going around uh, under, underneath the surface that everybody thinks that I look like uh, Alfredo. And uh, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But I'm willing to admit when apparently my genetics just lined up with that. So um, There we go. I can see you all now. So... Uh, Ratatouille, great movie. Um, one of the coolest parts at the end, there's this like super villain food critic who's just like, just I don't know, he embodies like this like perfect critic, like just wears the black scarf and clothes. It has like the creepy lair where he writes stuff. And at the end of the movie, he comes into the restaurant that uh, Remy and uh, Alfredo have been working at, and they're trying to wow him. And uh, what do they make him? They make him a dish called ratatouille, which looks like this on the screen. And this is, uh, actually in the movie, it's funny, they consider it, they're like, that's a peasant dish. Like, why would you make that at a really fancy restaurant? And there's obviously a pun there because ratatouille is the word rat in it, Remy was a rat. But uh, what happens in this scene is beautiful, where the critic had seen something, was almost aghast at what he thought. He's like, oh my gosh, like, ratatouille, you're kidding me, right? Like, and everybody was like, "Are you like that's what you want to go with? That's your play, huh?" And and so his impression of what he was about to eat had one view, but then he tasted it, and what did it do? It triggers this like memory that nothing sweeter than his mom's home cooking, right? Whenever she would make him that, and uh, what she was making him was actually traditional ratatouille. It's the second photo. So this is actually not ratatouille. This is ratatouille. Ratatouille is a very similar dish. It's compiled of squash and tomatoes and things like that. Um, but the style is the way that you present it. A good way to put it is ratatouille is what you make when you got your, your son's soccer team coming over and you just start cutting up stuff and you throw it all into a bowl, and this was what he had had. That is actually a fancy dish called tian, which is a French dish, and it's the same kind of ingredients, but the display is much more magnificent. And what's unique about it is that not only had this, had this, this critic had a certain view of what he thought of everything and, and, and you know, his presuppositions affected this, uh, but then he takes a bite and, he, and he goes back to his old kind of regression, and there's this beautiful reminder of this warmth and this, and this, this kind of beauty. And, and at the end of the day, we, we realized that really what, what he had cooked him was actually something far greater called Tian, which is in this photo. You can tell, the next photo, sorry. Uh, there's these layers. See how it's cut nicely? If you had the whole boys' soccer team over, you don't have four hours to cut everything perfect. So this would be more assembled. It's more aesthetic. And so why I tell you that story is because this just gives you a good understanding of what's going on in the, next, in the last chapter and in this chapter of Matthew is Jesus has been doing all these things, right? And he has, he has kind of a general opinion of who he is. And then what we do is we parse through all these different opinions of who Jesus is. You walk in like a critic and you have such presuppositions and expectations and you take this dish, you experience what Jesus is doing and there's something about your heart that, that just kind of reaches out to what he's doing. 
And in the same way, the critic, is, like what would be a menial dish to anyone, he has it and he's obsessed with it. And he wants nothing more. And it changes his heart. You know, the end of the movie is he's like this great guy and it kind of like, he writes this article on it, on it and it, it really kind of spoke to his heart. And in the same way, that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking different people's opinions. He's serving them something that they have already an agenda about when they see it and they take a bite of it and it changes their hearts. Now the problem is, is that that worked for a lot of people with Jesus. That worked for people who were like children, is the phrase we talk about. Children inherit the kingdom of God. Children who are willing to admit they don't know everything, right? They're maybe a little bit naive or innocent. They pursue the world in such a way where they think that they're ultimately not in control. And, and, and children, though, they can be stubborn, and they can think they control more than they do. At the end of the day, they have this innocence to them and this naivety. And that humility that we see is what translates directly to what it means to follow Jesus. So today, we're jumping into a passage that that is going to focus on uh, the hardened hearts of people in the world of Jesus and their opinions of him. In fact, if you look in verse 14, so we're going to be in 15 through 21, but if you look in 14, that was what we talked about last week, and I kind of glazed over this verse because we were, I was running out of time. It says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him as to how they could assassinate him. This is the first of many dominoes that will cause the... the death, torture, crucifixion of Jesus. And it's funny that, it's ironic that verses before this, he heals a man and frees him of his oppression. And what happens is the Pharisees want to kill him then. Uh, that they, they were, their hearts were so hardened that when they experienced the dish, right, that changed their hearts, they, they, had, they had refusal of it. Their, their hearts were so hardened with pride. It's kind of like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. No matter what happened, his heart was just continuing to harden. So these Pharisees decide that they want to kill him, and I think you're probably wondering, well, like, that's, like, what kind of heart, what kind of trajectory does your heart have to be in in order to see healing, see someone experience freedom? Everyone around you is like, this is awesome, and be like, we're going to kill that guy, you know? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And that's because we're actually not too far away from these Pharisees. We create a world in our, our lives, right? We talk about having two kingdoms, Jesus' kingdom and our kingdom. We create this kingdom, and it's so, it's so dependent on all of these comforts and desires and pleasures that we are terrified about removing one thing because everything else can crumble. The Pharisees had created over hundreds of years these mini tweaks to the law to create this structure of comfort and safety for their own lives and for the people that they were over. And this was going to not bid well to the infrastructure that they had created. It was in direct opposition with what Jesus wanted to do. So their opinion, unfortunately, is even though he's doing good things, they want nothing to do with him because they don't want to shake up the world and the comfort that they have seen. It's, it's interesting because I think nothing has been more telling in the last year with COVID um, of people believing what they want to believe. I'm not going to get political about this, but I'm, I, I'm, I don't know about you. I've had many conversations where someone says, well, I've read research and I believe this. And then you have someone else in the very same room who says, I've read research that's in direct opposition to what you're reading. Where are you reading? Oh, well, that's not as credible as where I'm reading. Or that's, right? I mean, honestly, I don't know if you've had that experience. That was my Thanksgiving, but it's... <laughs> It's like, okay, well, one of you is reading The Onion and one of you is reading Reuters. Quillen, no, I'm just kidding. But, but, but in all honesty, like, you can believe what you want to believe. In fact, Google will help you do that. If you type in a, a leading question, meaning like if let's just say for some reason you want to find out a fact about something, if you type it in such a way that it is a fact, it will pull up things that would say that's a fact. It will not pull up opposing things because it's a search engine and it just uses what you're, the, the verbiage you're using and how you're describing it. It's trying to figure out what you're thinking. We will believe what we want to believe. 
We will. I mean, we just we will. And in fact, if you've watched this, there's a recent documentary series called Dope Sick. If you've heard of that on, on Netflix or Hulu, I think. Um, it's the, the story about the, the OxyContin epidemic, how it killed over a half a million people with this drug that was proclaiming to be the least addictive opioid on the market, and when in fact it was no different than any of the other ones. And what they had done was, in, in the story, one of the main things that kind of pushed this drug was uh, all these all these pain management companies that they had created to, to reaffirm their drug was centered around this, this, this article, this scholarly article that basically said that like, you know, the type of pain was not addictive. It turns out that this, was, this wasn't even an article, it wasn't peer reviewed, it was a letter to the editor. Meaning like, here's something I found out. And it was four to five sentences. And that article became um, the major push behind releasing a drug that killed over half a million people. And you watch, the, you watch the series, and you're like, wow, these, these people are something else. And you start to realize like, they knew, right? They knew, but their wealth was just too important to them. And that uh, you, know, you watch it, and you're so angry, because you're like, like, they blame everyone else. That's the worst part. Not only do they, take, they don't take responsibility, they blame the users, they blame the doctors, they blame the sales reps. Nothing is ever their fault. And I think we think about Pharisees, and we think they're just so far off, like we villainize them, where I think we're a lot closer to them than we realize. The life that you've created probably looks a lot similar to theirs. You've built up a lot of things in your life where you just want to feel comfortable. You want to feel good. You don't want to experience failure or suffering or pain or malevolence. You don't want to experience all these things, and so you numb or you isolate or you're apathetic. And, and these Pharisees, I just want you to think about this piece that might grab you into their life is when I hear about the words of Jesus, when I truly see who he is, what are the things I'm most afraid of losing? Because that is most likely the walls that you've built up. If I was to follow Jesus, what are the things I'm most terrified about relinquishing or letting go? And so we're going to get a picture here of just who Jesus truly is. And, and I've been saying this, like Matthew, the book, the book of Matthew, what's unique about it is he just gives you like a shotgun, right? Like a shotgun shot, which has like a lot of little pellets, hits a target, and he gives you all these little like, pieces of who Jesus is. And so there'll be times where you're like, Trey, I've, I've heard this teaching before like several months ago. And it's because Matthew is just reminding you another, another depiction of who Jesus is. It's just another little angle that we're able to see and to get this full picture together. And so in verse 15 and 16, I'm going to give you the answer right here, right now. This is what we're looking at. We're going we're gonna to learn that Jesus is a spirit-filled servant. He's a spirit-filled Servant, if you're going to ask, someone asks you at lunch today, hey, what would you learn about a contrast? You say, I learned that Jesus was a spirit-filled servant. And they say, do you know what that means? You say, I don't know. That's just what Trey told me to remember. So that's all I know. Verse 15, it says this. Now, when Jesus learned of this, these Pharisees are trying to kill him. What does he do? He went away from there. Great crowds followed him. He healed them all. But he sternly warned them not to make him known. Interesting. You'll see several instances where Jesus does this. And it's very... It seems very hypocritical sometimes to Jesus because sometimes he's like, hey, don't tell anyone. Other times he doesn't seem to really care. There's large crowds falling and then he starts to teach and minister to these large crowds. It's like, which one is it, Jesus? Do you want a lot of followers? Do you not? Do you want moments of, of, of isolation with people? Do you want these massive crowds? And sometimes you're confused because you're like, what is the narrative? Like he's doing both, right? And at the end of the day, when he does these things, if you have kind of a, a deeper understanding when you're reading the scripture, you read the context and the nuance, he typically is telling people not to tell anything about him or to not like go brag if, if the overall culture is starting to lean towards this abusive, popularity, successism-driven culture. What I mean by that is 
when he starts to become popular for, for the wrong things, right? Not for him himself, but for his healings, the things he can do for people. That is when he most isolates, removes himself, and he basically just cuts down the idol that people can have of, like, you know, worshiping him for his stuff and not himself. Whereas in other times, he teaches the ethics of the kingdom, right? In Matthew 5 through 7, we talk about he's, he's, he's removing uh, the popularity, but he's, he's calling everyone who's listening, lots of people there, to this radical way of living that we are kind of under today. And uh, hundreds of people leave, right? They're like, eh, not for me. Don't want to do that. Like, not worth it, right? I don't want to love my enemy. That's just not me. And, and so we have these, these people who have different opinions, and it seems like sometimes he picks secrecy, sometimes he doesn't. And I, at the end of the day, what he's getting at here is he removes himself in this moment to avoid succumbing to the idols and the pressure of people in the world. People don't realize this, but uh, you, in your life, if you were to gauge yourself on like a linear graph of, uh, of your, you know, your overall pride, your successes, and whatever you want to call it, right, it will always grow unless you actively hack at it. What I mean by that is if you're not realizing, you're not thinking about the ways in which you're promoting your pride and your status and your fame, it always goes up because your insecurity will continue to drive that. And so what Jesus is doing is he's not having that. He's chopping at it continually. When it starts to get to these certain points, you see him remove himself. You start to see him spend more time with the Father because he knows that you know, anyone's capable of being insecure in the wrong things. And he starts to do that. That's the trajectory we see here. And uh, I think there's no better way to kind of explain this than uh, a book by Peter Schizero. If you're in a core, uh, 59 of you are right now reading this book called uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Hopefully that's been good so far. We're about halfway through. Um, yeah, that's probably been fun for some of you. You're like, this is heavy, but uh, important. He writes another book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and it's centered around the lens of becoming followers of Jesus. And he has a chapter titled this, which I just think is so fun. Follow the crucified Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus. And what he does is he, he compares four, four challenges of the world, the four challenges of Jesus. And, and the world, the four challenges of the world, and that we, we believe this is kind of how we are inundated. You become a baby, and it's, it's, you're breathing it in the air around you before you even realize it. The first one is being popular, right, whether in school, work, whatever, being popular, being great, being successful, and the fourth one, avoiding suffering and failure. Seems like a pretty good recipe, right? Well, you don't even realize like that is constantly eating at you. It is like being a dock in salt water. It is always attacking the metal, like whether you realize it or not. You are always submerged in it. And Jesus, however, flips all four of these on their head. What does he do? Number one, he rejects popularity. He denounces any activity that had traces of approval or admiration towards uh, of others. We see this in John. Uh, I'm going to read this passage. He tells the Pharisees in John, he says, you study the scriptures thoroughly because you think that in them you possess eternal life, and it is these same scriptures that testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept praise from people, but I know you that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes from only God? This verse uh, is pretty indicative. Jesus does not actually care as much about the popularity of us than he does his Father. Number two, he rejects greatism. Greatism is just, greatness is like the best way to describe it is thinking you're far better than you are or that you deserve special treatment or looks because of what you have done. 
Let's, uh, let's just take a quick survey of Jesus' life, right? He is not born into greatness, far from that, in a very unsanitary situation with danger. Uh, his crew, his disciples, were far from great. Total ragtag guys that you'd find. It'd be like going to the Sunoco and being like, hey, follow me, you know? It's not going to, like, the doctorate-level teachers and being like, hey, like, it's the people who we consider, oh, they're working there because they have to because they're not so-and-so, right? That's, that's how we view it. He doesn't have the greatest crew. Jesus' ministry was not even that great. Think about, think about how many people he actually influenced. Now, obviously, we're like, well, we're still here today, Trey. Millions of people follow him. But in the midst of his actual ministry, only a few thousand. In fact, there's pastors. Billy Graham had probably, has probably you know, preached to more people than Jesus did, which is kind of staggering when you think about it. His ministry even could have been, I mean, he could have been on earth forever and just kept doing this thing and churning up the numbers, but he didn't. He actively fought against the greatness creep, right? This, this kind of, this trajectory. Two weeks ago, we learned that, that what is his heart? His heart is gentle and lowly. Like, it, it is constantly approaching things at this just beautiful, humble level. And he says the greatest in the kingdom is a child because of that. Number three, he rejects successism. He rejects this in Matthew 4 when he's about to head into his earthly ministry and start doing some crazy stuff. Satan tempts him with successism. He says he'll give him the world. He bows down to him. Uh, he also, they also get opportunities right as he's about to die, right? One of the Roman guards is like, all right, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you really are Messiah, king of the Jews, like, bring yourself down. You don't think Jesus couldn't have done that? I think he could have. And he rejects that, even in that moment. There was clearly a story and a trajectory that he had to follow in the midst of God's will. And so for, for Jesus and for us, becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what, calls, what he calls you to do in his way is considered success. And in the last one, he embraces faithfulness through suffering and failure. What if, in the moments of suffering and failure, we start to become more like Jesus? Think about this. Let's just talk about the last day on earth. You know, he has his best of friends. We're fighting over who was the best and who would be able to be beside him as king, right, when they thought clearly he was going to take over Rome, which is just like even up until the end, they just were so far off. Uh, one of them would betray him. He broke bread with the very man who would kill him, betray him, for basically no money at all. He would be falsely accused and slandered. If you read that, I don't know if a lot of you read that, the story of him being accused, like, like he's silent. It is the most bogus trial you'll ever read, if you really understand what's going on. And he's falsely accused and tried, and he remains silent. He's mocked. He's left to die alone. Almost all of his friends abandon him. The only ones who really are there are a bunch of women that followed him, which shows you something about women's bravery over men, right? And, and John is kind of there. That's it. And even then, they're not really present. Like, he's just alone. But uh, Pete Cesaro says this. He says, Suffering and failure have always been God's means to transform us from willful to willing. From swimming upstream against the currents of God's love to floating downstream, trusting him, to take care of us. So this is, this is kind of the trajectory that we see. Like this, this is what it means to be a servant, right? A servant, there's, there's kind of two types of servants. There's one who serves primarily out of insecurity, meaning they serve because they, like, they need to feel wanted and needed. And typically, if you're like that, maybe you're a two on the Enneagram, right? You like over-serve and then you burn out and you're mad at yourself because you just can't say no to things. And you're like, I just need to help people, right? And, and, and you, you are actually playing into your insecurity by removing your own soul from the equation. You just give and give and give to others. That's one type. That is not the good type. And that's the danger of the two. They have to be aware of that. The second one, which is what Jesus is, is he is a servant out of his identity. 
He is a servant out of his flowing security with the Father. That he can do these type of things because he's not concerned what people think. He's not concerned about success the way that we measure it, right? He's not concerned about greatness. And he's not afraid of suffering and failure. I mean, think about what, if, you're, if you are experiencing Jesus' death and you're on the cross, you're thinking like, wow, people are really going to think I failed. Like, what a great, tremendous weight that that would experience. It's like building a company your whole life, and then at the end of retirement, it all blows up. And you just think, what was my life worth? I built my life into this, and it failed. What are people going to think of me? What kind of legacy have I left? So what does Matthew do, right? We get this, this kind of just little vignette, right? This little scatter shot of a shotgun. Verse 17, we get the longest Old Testament reference in Matthew, and it's from Isaiah. I'm going to read it, verse 17 through 21. This fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, and whom I take great delight. If you remember, God the Father delights in his son when he's being baptized. We see this beauty and this kind of like community that the Trinity experiences. And then he says, I will put my spirit on him, Holy Spirit. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. Now this is the part that gets a little tricky. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear or publicize his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, which is all other people, will hope. This is Matthew's understanding of the spirit-filled servant, is that in the midst of like the, the pressures that we often succumb to, that we make idols of, Jesus can stand the test of time because of his spirit-like posture rooted in his heart, but also his spirit-filled heart that is continually yearning and following the Father's will for his life. And it's this beauty we see throughout the, the gospel accounts is that Jesus is constantly like, and you notice that once you think about it, you just, it hits you all the time. He's constantly like re- reminding all people that he is submissive to the Father's will. It is not himself, him own, that he is like this, that he's just doing his own thing. He's constantly in hand in hand with the Father. And so in the midst of differing opinions and oppression, these, these Pharisees want to kill him. We see a Jesus who is, is from his manifesto given to him by Father, the Father in Isaiah is a spirit-filled servant. Now, it's funny, as the Pharisees, and probably any common Jew would know Isaiah 42, which is where he's quoting, right? That'd be like if someone said, hey, have you ever heard of John 3.16? You're like, yeah, I get the gist, right? They, they would know this, and they would know that Isaiah was prophesying about God's future Savior, his anointed one. Uh, but once again, their ideas and their kingdom could not stand in relationship to what this actually meant. The critic of the Ratatouille or the Tian has such presuppositions that his heart is not capable of really seeing what's in front of him until he just gives him this warm, like, just kiss of flavor, and his, just, his heart is opened. And for many of us, we're in that state. I think some of us are like completely in that state. We're like, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't buy it. I have a lot of things that I don't, I don't have answers to, I don't trust. Some of us, they'll follow Jesus, and we have these moments, or these pieces of our heart where we're cold, right? Like, like, yeah, I love Jesus, I want to follow him, but I have this family member that I just do not want to reconcile with, and I don't want to do it. It's too hard. Or I don't want to do this thing, because I know it can be perceived as failure, and I don't want to engage in that. Or I don't want to, I don't want to um, step into a sense of responsibility, because it's a lot of work, and it's uncomfortable, right? So all of us can find ourselves in the midst of our heart being cold, But he says here, it says in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone here publicize his voice in the street. The Greek word, arizo, which is quarrel or wrangle, 
it's obvious that Jesus is avoiding this Pharisee match. Like, they're, they're conspiring how to kill him. They're having this tense uh, discussion of his healing in, in the temple. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm just going to, like, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get an argument with these guys. Later he does in Jerusalem. But his, his goal is so set on what fa- the Father wants him to do. And right now he's not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's like the Mecca of the Jewish culture, right? He's all around in Galilee and areas. And he, he wants to focus on rejecting successism and greatism and popularity. And so he, he doesn't have anything to prove. I love that. It's, it's, like, it's just like when you get in an arguing match and you don't feel any need to, like, to prove yourself. Like, it's so freeing. Somebody can slander you or say mean things or, or throw daggers at you. Like, I don't know if you, in marriage, sometimes you feel insecure and so you start throwing daggers. You're like, well, well this and that. And you, it was not even, like, relevant. And you're like, well, that one hurt and wasn't relevant. But you, you having the ability to just be like, look, I don't have to prove anything. Like, I don't have to always be right. I, I, I tell myself that more than I should. And, and I, I don't need to prove anything. Like, I really don't. Jesus didn't need to prove anything when he was falsely accused. Having that freedom and that security. And so I, I, we think about it, we read it, and sometimes we think it's crazy. Like, like Jesus spends his life, his, he, he's pushing against the idol of success, and his priority is serving. It's serving the world, serving through his his life through his through his like things that he displays his healings and spiritual freedom right um, but it's also his sacrifice he spends a life of serving and that is the spirit guiding him into that so if you ask hey like this holy spirit thing is pretty confusing don't really get how that works is it god is it not how does that like what does that mean we're going to be talking about that a little bit next week um, over the next few weeks but the spirit in this instance should draw you to a posture and a conviction of serving that is one of the default DNA pieces that we see about the life of Jesus. That, like I said, not insecure serving, meaning I need to do this so that people think certain things of me or I feel better about myself. It is serving out of the love that you've first received, the dependence that you have. And in this, I think there's no better way to describe this kind of like posture of our heart, of, 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 of relinquishing ourselves, following the Spirit in, in a servant, than this uh, famous story in uh, the Brothers Karamazov, which is by, written by Russian author Dostovsky. He's like a world-renowned, famous writer. I've been trying to read that book. It's like 1,200 pages, and I'm just taking my time. Uh, people are like, Trey, you should read more fiction. And I was like, all right, I'll start with this. And like, that was a terrible idea. It is translated from Russian. I was like so excited. I was like, gonna, I was like oh, like, I'll read on Kindle. And then I realized there's like 10 different translations of it in English. And I got to go on Reddit and read, like, which one's the best translation. I couldn't even read the book because I had to read about the book's translations for an hour. So if that tells you, you know, like, SparkNotes is, like, they have SparkNotes of SparkNotes. That is, I am distilling this down manyfold. But I haven't gotten to this story yet, but I've read about it. I read about it in three different books all in the same span of one week. And they were just all mentioning it. I'm like, I feel like God is trying to show me something here. So this is a story in the book. The brothers are all different. And Doskovsky is a Christian, but he, he brilliantly uses fiction and he kind of puts Jesus here, but he never actually says it. It's beautiful. He never says Jesus or really Christ. He'll mention this kind of idea, but, and then you, you draw into the story of what he's doing. So there's two, there's two characters in this specific story. This story is called the Grand Inquisitor. And what's happening is Ivan, which is one of the brothers, and Alyosha. Alyosha is this monk. He's pursuing the life, the monastic life of following God. And he's pretty timid, pretty shy. But he, he kind of leans into this calling, and he wants to live a good life, right? And then Ivan is like your good-looking, staunch atheist, like went to Boston and just like wants to well, has 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 like a has like a, a bent, like kind of has like this like 
righteous anger of like, I need to prove everyone the things that I believe, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, where you sit in a room with someone for 10 minutes and you find out like, oh, they want to prove me wrong in this thing. And, but he's compelling. He's very smart. He almost can't win with him. And so they're having this, this argument at a tavern and, and, and Ivan is just trying to like, just smash Alyosha's faith. And he's pulling all these stories out. And this is the final one that he believes will be the kill shot um, because, you know, in essence, when he's kind of compiled this, uh, it, it was just this, like, you have no words for it, you know? There's no, there's no way to fight back. And what's crazy is Dostoevsky writes a book about then a fake, like, story that he created in this that all intertwines. And, and so I'm going to give you kind of the, the, the cliff notes of the story. But basically, Ivan speaks to his brother um, about this, the return of Jesus during the Spanish Inquisition. So, like, this is kind of a historical piece. But basically, Jesus comes back, and he starts doing what Jesus does, right? He starts healing people. He starts freeing people from spiritual oppression. And he starts creating a ruckus, right? And what happens is he's doing all these things, and people are like, wow, this is awesome. This is amazing. But then the church kind of, the, the clergy, right, and, and the guy would be called the Grand Inquisitioner, who's like the guy who is kind of in charge of the church, arrests him. And uh, he sits down with Jesus. We don't, like I said, it doesn't say it's Jesus, but th- this man, this Messiah, and he's in jail with him, and he basically just reams him out about how uh, what you've come to try and do, it's not, we don't want it. It's not good. It's not what we want. It's only going to cause problems, and it's not, it's not any good. And he kind of he gives him the rehashes. When you came, you know, in, in the first century and you lived your life, like, it just caused absolute chaos. And, and then we, we slowly watered it down so that we could kind of get away with it being more palatable and we could live just moralistic and hypocritical. And then we as the church can control the way people are. Like, we can control the narrative. Like, just like the Pharisees, right? They slowly start to take these small little posture shifts in the law of the Old Testament so they can kind of strangle it and feel good about, like, comfort and control, right? And he's kind of saying the same thing, right? Like, we, we have no need for you anymore. That when you come on the scene and who you truly are is not fit in our box. And so, that, so for that reason, like, we're going we're gonna to execute you because we, we don't want you here and we are, we are nervous about the weight of who you are. And so Ivan's telling him this because what he's doing is he's kind of making fun of how if the church is supposed to be like Jesus, look at where they've come. They've become the most moralistic, hypocritical, legalistic people. And all for what? Blind faith, right? So we can tell some people they're bad and some people they aren't. And he's pulling it. Basically, if Jesus were really real, this would not, like, this is, this is, this is the church right now. It's pathetic. And if Jesus really came back, we'd laugh at him, we'd kill him because we're so, so caught up in our own pride that there's no Jesus capable of removing that heart of stone from our life. And this is a very long story, but I'm summarizing it. And it gets to the end, and the Inquisitor is, is finished talking, and Jesus remains silent the entire time, which is familiar to his trial. He remains silent the entire time, and the Inquisitor basically gets to the point where, you know, it, it, he says it, the work took centuries, and the last thing the church needs is all that effort to be ruined by the return of a man who insisted that people bear all the weight in the first place. Basically, to have responsibility in what it means to follow the teachings of Jesus. And Christ listens in silence. Then as the Inquisitor turns to leave, because he's like, we're going to execute you tomorrow. Uh, As he turns to leave, Christ embraces him and kisses him on the lips. The Inquisitor turns white in shock. And then he goes out and he leaves the cell door open. That's kind of where this this, this story leaves off. And Ivan kind of gives you this, like, compelling, he tries to draw you in, but ultimately the narrative he's trying to push is that this Christ that, we, that, that you follow is, is not real. It doesn't have any weight. 
and isn't, isn't capable of, of change, right? He's just a loving guy. Like, he doesn't mean anything, right? Like, the kiss on the lips doesn't matter, right? Like, right? It's all about that, the inquisitor's heart, and he's, you know, so he kind of leaves us up for grabs, and I think the Pharisees, and sometimes their own heart, are, are in this same posture where we mock the idea of a spirit-filled servant in our world does not survive. Like, we don't. They don't run up the ladder of success. They don't make tons of money, and we, like, have, we don't write magazines about them. Like, the Jesus who would come today would be appearing as a failure in a lot of people's thoughts. And the Jesus who came and fulfilled Isaiah, they even had the writing before to know what was going to happen. They still didn't believe it because their hearts were so cold. And what does he do? Jesus comes to this posture in verse 20, 21. He will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is, this is important. A bruised reed and a smoldering wick, two illustrations. A, a reed was used for measuring and for support. So once it lost its straightness, it was useless, and it would be broken, snapped, and burned. And then a strip of linen cloth would be used as a lamp wick, and if it smokes, it is no longer useful in giving light. It becomes a source of pollution. Essentially, the people who are the most social outcasts, the bent reeds and the, the, the smoldering wicks, right, like have no meaning, and that would be Ivan's kind of idea. Ivan is, is much more like, the, you know, they, they don't have any value to the world, this whole like kind of pithy, like suffering, loving guy. It has no, has no merit in, in the world. And, and Jesus is coming. He will not break those, meaning the people we most often think are worthless. He fulfills justice through those very people. That he, he brings justice and victory to the nations, not through violence, which is what a lot of people thought. People were really excited to get out swords and start going after Rome. He does it through serving, a spirit-filled serving. And so even when the Grand Inquisitor is giving him all of these things, Christ doesn't fight back, and what Ivan sees is this kind of like wussy guy who doesn't have a backbone, and at the end of the day, like we all follow that, like that's not, that has no value in the world, and the things that we're doing feel empty, and, and at the end of the day, uh, I think it's kind of ironic that Jesus kisses uh, the Grand Inquisitor, like kissing your would-be executioner, and for Ivan, that just seems like no big deal, right, like that, as in like, that's not going to change anything, like the world is the world, right? And it's ironic if you've ever seen C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Aslan, at the end, when he redeems people, he, like, he breathes on them. Like, there's something about this intimacy that, that we experience in God, that like, his breath brings life, his kiss can change our hearts. And so this is the way that it ends in the book. So as it would appear as though Ivan is being successful in picking apart the futility of Christianity and its brokenness, manipulation, and, and falsity to rational thinking. He's a big rational guy. He kind of is like this like mini Nietzsche, if you will, in the story. Thinking he had won, he explains he explains his philosophy of life, which is hedonistic. It's drink, party, enjoy himself until he has had enough, and then he can end his own life whenever he chooses. That was Ivan's way of living life. And this is the last, this is the conversation ends with this. It says, Ivan continuing to deepen his belief, everything is permitted, basically. I'm not budging from doing whatever I want, saying that he won't renounce it. He asks. Ayosha, what? Will you renounce me for that? Will you remove your, your relationship and life from me for that very thing that I want to follow? Ayosha, after being quiet through the whole story, stood up, went over to him in silence, and gently kissed him on the lips. Ayosha is showing the profound reality that I think is more powerful than ra- ration, rational thinking, and, and Dostoevsky would agree with this, that the power of love in the midst of, of suffering and of, of the fear of the world, the success, the greatness, all of that stuff, 
Alyosha imitates the nature of Christ. What type of person can kiss their own killer on the lips? And we, what's, what's crazy about Discovsky, he's, you know, he leaves it very open and it's kind of Eastern style of thinking. And uh, we don't know specifically how that kind of affects Ivan, but in the story, there's this kind of open ending. Like, will your heart be receptive to this service, this kiss of Jesus? So in your own life, like, what are those areas in your heart where you're like, yeah, I'm really holding on to this, don't want this to change, terrified of, of what the culture of Jesus would, would create in the midst of the world culture that I'm living in? And, and this story is so profound, and it's, I mean, there's, like, so many philosophies on it, so many people write about it. It's, like, one of the most famous fiction fiction stories, like, that was written. And it's because it's this compelling idea that at the end of the day, like, you can create these cool little rational arguments and... And we can argue about that. And some people have a lot of value in that. Like, I'm a very rational, like, logic-driven guy, and I, I found a lot of value in that. But there's nothing that beats kissing your enemy on the lips. There's nothing more powerful than turning away from your enemy and, and saying, I have nothing to prove to you. There's nothing more powerful than finding the very thing that you don't feel capable of loving and loving it. And that is what Jesus does. He loves the person who is most incapable of being loved, who is potentially the most worthless society, like in the society, who has maybe the most... And here's the thing. Jesus came for the Pharisees, too. He came for everyone. The problem is the Pharisees didn't want to leave their kingdom because they didn't have any humility. They weren't like ch- children. People who have a broken arm, who are struggling, who realize, the, like, oh, I can't control the world. Those are the people who see the beauty of this because they realize that they needed the kiss and that Christ will continue to pursue them even in the midst of their own faulty thinking or culture. So we have a Savior who is, he is a servant and spirit-filled. And I think I, I want to kind of um, poke this out for next week. He's able to do this because of the Spirit's filling. I think we don't talk about the Spirit a lot in church, right? It's kind of like, oh, I don't know how that works. But the Spirit is, is, is drawing you closer to the heart of Jesus and drawing you closer to the heart of Jesus into others. And that is the only way that we see Ayosha be able to do something like that is the spirit moving in his heart. It's not this work we just kind of conjure up. Like, I just got to tough it up, love my enemies. But that in understanding the weight of the gospel and of Jesus, that we, we start to be formed a more heart of, of, of beauty and flesh and that we're able to love others from that. So I want to invite Nick up. We're going to close in a song here. I, I love reflecting on this verse um, as we close here. And um, we kind of leave every Sunday we have a uh, opportunity for you to take communion, bread and cup, for those of you who follow Jesus. Jerry's going to come by with one if you want to grab one. And that's just a reminder of, here, here's where I am. Like, I have, I have killed Jesus, and he kisses me in the midst of that. And it's a reminder that his sacrifice is something that we remind ourselves of continually, that we didn't deserve it, that he did it, that he has the spirit-filled servant heart in him. And I, I think about this, and I just, maybe as you take that, or if you don't take that and you don't believe in Jesus, or you just want to reflect this is a verse that I want you to reflect on while you're, while you're thinking about it, partaking in it. As Jesus is dying, being tortured, made fun of, mocked, out of his last breaths in Luke, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very kiss of Christ is forgiveness for the people who are not worthy. That's you included. Everyone in the room. That's why we all take this together. I can't even fathom of thinking about, you know, kissing my worst of enemies, but in the next few weeks, we're going to get this vignette of the power of the Spirit and our capability to do that, which I'm very excited about. 
So as we close here, you can, you can take uh, communion during this song. If, if you, you want to sit and just reflect during the song, you totally can. You're welcome to stand and sing or sing while you're sitting. Totally up to you. We also have people in the back who would love to pray for you um, because we believe that in, there's power in prayer through the Spirit, and we want to pray for maybe some strongholds or things that you're experiencing. Uh, and then, yeah, we're going to just let Nick sing here. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.